Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Christopher Hall Show here on the Neil Haley Show as well. I'm excited to welcome program Nobel Prize nominated doctor and also best-selling author, Dr. Christopher Hall. Dr. Hall, how are you? And you're excited about our guest, aren't you? Wow, I'm doing great now. How are you? I'm very excited about our guest today. All right, so introduce our guest. Well, no problem. Well, you know, uh, this individual, we know we know that is an actress of film, television, uh, humanitarian. Uh, we know her uh, probably most from the Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine episode. And uh, wow, so I'm very excited to welcome to the show uh, Chase Madison. Welcome to the show, Chase. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be with you guys. That's fantastic. So we want to just jump in right specifically right into Chris's first question. Oh, no problem. You know, and so we, we have a lot to talk about, but just quickly, you know, Chase, tell us a little bit about kind of where you're from and how you got into acting. Thank you so much. Well, my mom was a theater director, so I grew up in this business. I've been acting since I was five years old, and it's wonderful to still be doing the work and fantastic projects like The Baby Pact. Absolutely. So talk about, and so, you know, talk about specifically enough, was acting something you want to do your whole life? Is it something just you really were passionate about wanting to do or you had other ideas at first? You know, it's all I ever did and it's all I ever wanted to do for various reasons. But, you know, when people tell me, you know, they're thinking of getting into the business, I always go back to that. If, unless it's something deep and just biting at your soul that you have to do this, then don't. But if it's something that you just can't restrain yourself from, then do it with all your heart. And that's what I've always done. And um, yeah, it's been a good, it is a good long run, still cooking. Um, I, I, I love working with teams like the, the team on the Baby Pack. That's part of the joy of this business. Uh, Matt Berman has led a, a really fun, engaged, talented group of actors. And um, that's a huge part of the joy of this. It's more than just being out there, seeing your face on camera. Um, it's really about the family feeling and the messages that we get to spread as actors. And that's what I find in this project. That's, that's what drew me to it. All right, fantastic. Go ahead, Chris, next question. Wow, that, that, that's just so incredible. And you know, the whole Star Trek, uh, you know, series was incredible, but Deep Space Nine was trailblazing. You know, the different types of actors they had on, diversity involved. And you were part of that, Chase. Now, tell us about that. Uh, uh, you just being in the scene that time with the Deep Space Nine. Deep Space Nine was an incredible experience, and it was also one that I strategized purposely as a career move. Mm -hmm. I had a friend who had been on Star Trek, and I thought, wow, what an incredible legacy that must be to have that kind of body of work, of important work, of well-loved storytelling, and also that fan base. And uh, that's actually how I met Matt Berman and why I'm here today. Um, it's it's the gift that keeps on giving. Star Trek is something that will be part of our history and our, our lives, you know, our careers, careers for the rest of our lives. And so that's a wonderful feeling. So you were talking strategizing. What were, where were you trying to transition when you strategized for that opportunity? Well, you know, you can actually try to point your career in one way or another. If you want to do daytime television, you meet those casting directors. If you want to do... Uh, if you want to work for the next 30 years, you strategize Star Trek. And um, 
that kind of thing is, is important to keep in mind that this fan base is so lovely and passionate. They're always asking, what can I see you in next? We're always getting opportunities for press and the career is just able to grow. And how many actors get that? Not that many. Um, it's wonderful to be part of this legacy. Absolutely. All right, Chris, next question. Oh, no problem. And just kind of backing up, you know, you study the University of Texas Austin. Uh, tell us, uh, what you studied there contributed all, I mean, to your career. Hey, the last part, which, what that led to my career? Oh, no, uh, just what you studied there in college at UT Austin. Uh, has yes. that to your career? Well, I, I think I got that question. I majored in acting and that was an incredible experience because let's take the baby pack for instance when you're on set you need to know your stuff in a way that a lot of people who don't have those chops can't access it's important to have for instance a theater background which most of us on the baby pack do um so that we can work work quickly so that we can know understand matt berman and his shorthand when he says i, I need you to feel this more deeply or um right. I, I just need you to tighten this up and that's those that's like a muscle that you go back to that you rely on and you go got it i could do that right now <laughs> and so um so working with actors such as gail o'grady who's got so many chops from you know an incredible career on television uh connor trenier has a wonderful television career Haley duff is she's a wonderful actress and and is such a natural lovely presence um so much love in that girl and that translate to the screen. Same uh, Heather McComb uh, and obviously Quentin Aaron. All of these actors have such uh, a skill, really. Yeah. And if I may go on, the Big Act has, like, it has both comedy and drama in a way that really helps the story take root in our hearts. You know, exactly. when you can make someone laugh, you can make them cry. Yeah. And that's what that's what the baby pack does. Yeah, I've interviewed uh, Quentin. He's a really great guy. Uh, yeah. And his story is amazing. And when you think about specifically enough, this this movie, what do you think is what do you what do you hope that the audience gains from it? Gets from it? One of Matt Berman's primary messages in this movie is that with family, the door is never really closed. And knowing Matt as I do, that's, that's an important message in his heart and in this story that drives us all to know that families are not easy, mm -hmm. but they're important. And so it's worth taking the time and the love and digging deep and taking a risk and doing everything we can to repair and to support relationships with people the people we love. And I guess I think that re that relates to, to blood family. And, and I also believe that that relates to found family, but what he says is with family, the door is never closed. That's such an important thing. Chris, uh, next question. But no, no, no problem. I mean, and, and everything she's done in film, in uh, television, also in, uh, you know, the audio drama series, you know, the end, um, you know, he, he's like I said, it's almost like a humanitarian effort to bring people together. To let people know, hey, uh, that, that we can have fun while we do things. Uh, comment on that, Chase. What, what do you think about that? Is that what's your theme, overriding theme? My overarching theme? Yes. I would say my overarching theme 
is just keep going because you can make life better. There is such a, a, you know, there's such a lot of people that have depression and anxiety and that are ready to throw in the towel in one way or another. And whether that means a, a, a permanent decision, which is just pain, awful, or whether it's a decision to just, you know, lie in bed for an extra three hours or no, get up and go, get up and, and, and make things happen. I have brought my life back from the types of struggle and challenge and, and frankly darkness that I never thought I could. And what I want to let people know is that they can too. Yes. And really the secret to that, whether it's in your career, certainly we know this as an actor, or whether it's just in your life, that if you just keep doing the next right thing and you act with love and integrity, then your life will get better and you can do things that you never thought were possible. And I found that. And that's the sort of resilience that I think we need and this country needs um, just to, to really stay true to our own core values um, and, 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 and things will get better. Now, tell us where people can see The Baby Pact. When is it coming out? Thank you so much. It's on, uh, I'm sorry, it's available on demand and on video everywhere on June 14th. So video on demand and on demand. Uh, you can find it pretty much anywhere movies are streaming. It's very exciting to see this movie. I just want to say this movie is a follow-up to The Wedding Pact. And The Wedding Pact showed us happily ever after, which is a wonderful theme, of course. The Big Pack shows us what happens when happily ever after doesn't quite go right, which I think is something we can all relate to. So we see this set of challenges and we see people working through them. And um, it's a wonderfully relatable movie that will make you laugh and cry. June 14th, on demand and video on demand everywhere. All right, Chris, go ahead and summarize Chase for us. Well, with, with no problem. I mean, she made some great points. You know, she talked about mental health and how important that is for us to address that as, um, you know, as humanitarians like yourself, really, as, as, you know, as a physician, as myself. She mentioned core values. Get back to our core values, okay? And uh, and, and pretty much uh, just believe in family and uh, and work hard. So, wow. And it was just great having her here on the show today. Thanks again, Chase. Thank we appreciate working with all you, social media-wise for all the Trekkie fans of yours out there. Thank you so much. I am at Chase Masterson on Twitter and Facebook. I'm It's Chase Masterson on Instagram, and you can follow the charity that I founded, at Superhero IRL on every platform. All right. So thank you. Sure. And uh, you can find The Baby Pact at WPTheBabyPact.com. Well, thanks again. I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, such yep, a, a, may note. I say that again? It's yeah, WP... Sorry, you can find... The Baby Pact at WP2TheBabyPact.com. All right. Well, thanks again for coming by. We appreciate it. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. That Wonderful was talking with you guys. Christopher Hall show here on the Neil Haley Show. Take care, guys. Hi, everyone. And welcome to the Neil Haley Show. And we're working again with uh, my co-host, Juan Aliman of the 80s Hour Podcast. Juan, how are you, man? What's going I'm on? I'm doing great. Had a great weekend. So uh, how are you? I'm doing great, and I know you're excited about our guest, especially how she's really big-time 80s for sure. So go ahead and introduce our guest. Oh, most definitely. I um, When you told me, I got super excited 
And I did all this research because I wanted to have some good questions for her. But today we're, interviews, we're interviewing uh, a lead singer of Missing Persons, Dale Bozio. How are you today, Dale? Hey, thank you very much. It's very nice to, to be here and, and to have your time to chat today. Thank you. Yes. I'm, I'm great. Super good. You um, have an interesting career. You have a long, very long career between acting, writing music, singing music, uh, performing in, in tours around the world and everything that you've done. What, what made you know that this was for you? To, I mean, at the very beginning, because you went to school for you to study drama but uh, from what I found out, it, you know, you didn't like it that much. So what made you go into music? What made you decide that avenue? Well, it was, it was all Frank Zappa. I mean, really, I, I didn't really want to be a singer. I didn't think that I did anyway, not um, at the time. I, I love it now. Of course, I, I'm, I'm enthralled and so grateful that I have uh the pipes but i um it was all because of frank i ran into frank zappa and um i had gone to california to 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 work for um hugh hefner at the mansion and i was expecting to move in but when i got there he did not come downstairs to talk to me and he acted really and strange. He one was waving me upstairs with his pipe, so I left, and I le and, and 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 ended up running into Frank Zappa that day. And Frank asked me to to be this girl Mary on Joe's Garage, which now is infamous. But at the I know. <laughs> I said, Frank, I don't know how to sing. I came to Hollywood to be a movie star, and he just cracked up laughing. He he started laughing hysterically, and. He, he, he looked at me in this like, awkward way, and I, I knew he believed me. <laughs> that, was, that was a real funny part of it. <laughs> he believed me <laughs> because I was really serious. I really, I wanted to be a movie star, and, and then it, that didn't work out. So he thought that was just the funniest thing ever, and it went on from there. That, that that was my relationship with Frank. We I mean I I would crack joke jokes and Frank would laugh. <laughs> <laughs> the, so so interesting when you talk about uh, Dale about Frank and stuff. Uh, would you say he really was such a big integral part of you in your career in a lot of ways? Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. He 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 was the string really that 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 thread me together and in such a strange way because when I met Frank, I, I wasn't thinking anything, you know, about Frank. I, I just loved him and wanted to say hello to him. I never thought, oh yeah, I gotta go, I gotta go meet Frank. I gotta go be in Frank's band. No, that was not on my mind. Uh, it was just a matter of reflecting his music and other than that, um, so when one step led to another with me being in the Joe's garage and then, then I had a really 
a, a tragic accident. I was only in LA for six months. I was 21 years old. I made that record with Frank and saying, I don't want to get drafted with Frank. Um, and, and then pretty much, uh, I had a terrible accident. I was only in LA for six months. I was 21 years old. And then, um, I fell out a window 40 feet and I woke up and I was in Frank's living room <laughs> and, um, I was slipping in and out of a coma, <clears throat> but Frank's wife, Gail took me in. And um, wow. I, was, I, I was really, I had fallen 40 feet out of a window, split my head open and cracked my ribs and my kneecaps. So I was pretty uh, out of it uh, for a while. <clears throat> and it took me a long time to recover. So it was frank. So every time that, and then I woke up. Uh, he, he sort of strung me together because then I woke up back and I was in Boston. I had got off life support machine and all this stuff, addicted to morphine and what have you. And Frank ends up in Boston playing a concert. And I and Terry called me at my home with, with my mom and told me, you know, Frank was going to be there and, and that they'd come over and visit me after the concert. So I'm like, I, I kind of somehow don't think that Frank's going to come to my house in Medford and visit me right now. Uh, um, so make a long story short, I thought, okay, I guess I better go to the concert or I'll probably never get to see Terry and, and Frank Zapper again. And this was in, uh, I believe it was in 77. And then... Frank said, okay, I'm picking you up tomorrow and we're going to Europe and you're going to come with us on this European tour. So I went on tour with Frank just as a person, you know, just along for the ride with Terry. And of course, because I made Frank laugh and believe me, they, Frank, Frank didn't allow just anybody along with him on a tour, <laughs> especially of Europe. <clears throat> so I had to be on my best behavior. And uh, all the whole time, he would he just looked at us like there was something going on, you know. He, he was so inspiring between Terry and I, and he, he did he he did push me to be next to Terry quite a bit. Even after we were divorced, he he said, you know, you should get back to see Terry again, see if you can put the marriage back together. <laughs> like I don't think it's up to me, Frank. And and so it never really, we never got back together, but we did end up making Bing Fish together with Frank once again. And um, I just continued to sing or be professing my voice because that's where Frank led me and it stayed with me. Okay. Now you met Terry with Frank, and then in 80, you started Missing Persons. Was there anyone else in Missing Persons that that worked with Frank, or how did you meet everyone? How did everyone come together to make such a great yeah, band? Yeah, yeah. That, well, Patrick O'Hearn, the bass player, he worked with Frank as well. And so did Chuck Wilde. He studied with, he worked with Frank for a minute, too. And um, Terry Bonzio was with Frank, and then Laurie Cucarulo was with Frank, and I made records with Frank. 
but never went on tour with Frank. I never went on stage with Frank. And so Frank turned to us one day and said, you should put a band together, call it the Cute Persons. <laughs> and me, Terry and Lauren looked at each other and went, I gotta know about cute. But <laughs> so they came home one day and said, okay, we got it. We'll be the missing persons. We're missing from Frank. And that's when we decided on. And, and, and Warren was at the time playing with Frank and he actually, you know, stopped playing with Frank and started playing with me and Terry. And we didn't have anything. We had nothing. We started from scratch. Wow. So did you think that the missing persons, when you formed the band would be something that was going to have the success it did? Yes, part of part of me did because I was reaching for the moon, as I do. <laughs> I have high hopes, and so yes, I'm very grateful that it did uh, work out this way. Um, about the '80s thing, uh, I never really thought about that much. So you know, in the '80s when I we did try to get these record deals from even including David Geffen they would send me a rejection letter back saying, this is not the direction of the music the 1980s. And I would just sit there and laugh and rip off these letters. I should have saved them, but I didn't. I like just ripped them to shreds to the tiniest little pieces I could. <laughs> and so wow. they sent me a letter too. And I said, oh, this is it. I'm calling the president. And I'm telling him they made a big mistake. And I think, <laughs> and I called the president of Capitol Records and said, I'm inviting you firsthand to come to my concert. We just sold out the Santa Monica Pacific. And I know because I sold it without a record deal, without anything. You have to see and hear missing persons. And he came to the show. And as soon as the show was over, he said, he called me over and he said, Dale, I just want to tell you, you have a record deal. I'll see you tomorrow in my office. And that was the way, that's how it started. And that gave me so much ammunition in, in my prowess to just go further and further and further. And every step I took with missing persons, I pushed it a little bit over the edge because I knew I was being supported by geniuses. Geniuses. Terry Bozio, Patrick O'Hearn, Warren Cucalulo, Frank Sappo, who gave us his studio, brand new studio, said, go get Ken Scott, who just finished doing the, the, the production of, the, of Red, uh, Let's Dance by David Bowie, and get, get Ken Scott, come in here, use a brand new Kurtz while, I mean, come on, this is back in 79, so we're going back a while, right? There were recording studios, and you had to do this from the beginning to the end. There wasn't, you know, turn on the, the computer baloney. So we really went to work, and Frank said, use my studio, take it over, get it done. I'll see you when I come back in a few days from New York, and... I'll listen to it. And we did. And we did. And we took this, this very seriously into heart. And those songs are hits today. And those songs went on from Frank's studio that he gave us for free that day, that weekend, and, and for his whole life, what he gave us. He gave us the stage. He, he shared his whole support system 
with Terry Warren and I. We need to visit his grave on, on a regular basis, Terry Warren and I, and, and meet there, but they won't. I've asked them before to meet me there, but they won't and they don't. I'm, I'm much more compassionate than my fellow friends, and I'll, I'll keep it that way because it, it, it floats my boat. I, I, I love to be in remembering of the ones I love, and that's one of my greatest loves is Frank, and he was only my friend. He kissed me on the forehead three times in my life. He kissed my son Shane on the forehead when he was one year old. He stopped the, the, the 27-piece harmonic officer to come and kiss him on the forehead and sing him happy birthday that day. It blew my mind. It blew my mind. Wow. He was only my friend. He was only my friend. That was it. And I know, I know he loved me. I know he, I know he loved me as a human being. <clears throat> and he was the only person I know that could <laughs> uncommittingly love you. Really, really. So I admire his children. And, you know, I wish them great, great wellness and, and peace of mind, knowing that their father was such an incredible genius. I, I That's a beautiful think. sentiment right there, Dale. Um, after Missing Persons, because we talked a, a bit about Missing Persons, but you had a solo album called Riot in English that uh, you did on the Paisley Park album. I mean, on the Paisley Park label. What was it like working with Prince? You know, I didn't work with Prince. That's the thing. Um, wow. We had, a love, we had a love affair, but we didn't work together. He wrote a song for me. Um, I've never been to Paisley Park. Um, he wrote a song for me called So Strong. It's mm -hmm. really beautiful. It's on uh, Riot in English. But I never went to Paisley. He never worked on my records. He didn't sing on my records or play on my records or anything. He gave me his engineer, Coke and all his guitars and his drums over at the studio, Sunset Sound. And I went in there for a couple of days and made my first song, Simon, Simon. And then I continued to record there. And uh, he loved it. He jumped up and down. He made a big giant billboard that said Dale Bozio for president. And he, he loved it. He loved it. And he loved me. I know he did. He was, you know, he was a sensitive kind of guy and so he he did have a bit of a attitude or some sort or something um they're very delicate very delicate guy i i i know the world loves him you know and and me too so and his music is is historic i mean there's not there's not much you can say um <laughs> bad about him you know, he sees he's had his loves of life and such and so, so. But, you know, is not really measured by his money or women, or are they? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so how did you first meet Prince? Well, I, I went to this place called Tramps. It was a club at the Beverly Center in Los Angeles. It was a big, you know, hot new club uh, dancing place. And 
my friend Jamie Shoup was my manager and his manager and some other people's managers, as a matter of fact. Um, she was with Cavallo, Ruffalo, and Fagnoli, and they managed Prince. And she said, if you one of these nights go with this club, Tramps, I guarantee you're going to run into Prince. And I said, oh, okay, sure, fine. And I had happened to have a membership there with my friend Philip Ehrlich already. So I had heard that he was frolicking there. And so it was just kind of one of the same old nights, you know, got dressed up, went Saturday night, go, go to Tramps, <laughs> like midnight. So I walked into Tramps with all my friends. Um, and there I saw Prince standing over by the side and with two big giant bodyguards, he was by himself. I just traced right over to him. I poked him on the nose and I, his bodyguard lurched at me and he said, it's all right. And I, he said, he just poked me on the nose. I said, I did, I did, I did because I wanted to get your attention. I, I was going to ask you to dance, but I didn't think that you'd answer me. So do you want to? He just did like a 360 turnaround, like one of his like little steps and went to where the music was playing, which I knew was the dance floor. And what did they flip on? Little red Corvette, right? Okay. Oh, so wow. All like, you know, cliche is this. And, uh, then immediately he couldn't he couldn't dance to it. He 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 was like, I'm not he, he couldn't do it. You know, it was someone else's song on before that, like cameo or something. And he was all ready to get up and, and just be a regular dancing person. But as soon as they flipped it onto his song, he he walked off the stage. He walked off the dance floor. And I followed him and we sat down and we said, Do you want something to drink? I said, Yes, please, champagne. Champagne came right over. He leaned over to me and he said, do you have a car? I said, I do have a car. He said, what kind of a car do you have? I said, I have a red Corvette. And he said, okay, will you take me for a ride? I said, yeah, I'll take you for a ride. He said, now? I said, absolutely. So we barely touched the champagne. I had like one sip of champagne. I wasn't drunk or anything, but I was pretty high on cocaine. That's for sure. So we go out and get my car. And he comes around and follows me in this limousine jumps on the limousine and gets in my drive in, in the passenger side <clears throat> and he says could you could you drive me really fast now <clears throat> i looked at him and i said you're talking to me <laughs> <laughs> i will definitely drive you really fast <laughs> and i just stepped on it i was at the corner i don't know if you know california much but it was about, I don't know, a couple of miles. I went down the road. I, I, I was about at almost at 120, and he screamed, stop, at the top of his lungs, literally. He, he got scared. I, I finally scared him. I, I wasn't going to stop because I, you know, I don't, I loved, I loved the speed at the time. I mean, I, I, I love, <laughs> I would be, I'm the first one to say, what did you want to be when you grew up? a drag racer, a race car driver, you know, like, so I, I really, I, I really, um, I love cars anyway. I really love cars. Okay. So, now um, there is something that I've read about you. And that's, and that's, uh, that's how I met him. Okay. 
Now, there's something I read about you being called the original Lady Gaga or Gwen Stefani or whatever, you know, so, someone who came after you. What do you feel about, you know, that when somebody says you're the original and, you know, then they say a name like Lady Gaga or Gwen Stefani or... No, I don't understand those compliments or comments. Compliment. I find them as compliments. I don't. Yes. I don't find anybody that copies anything to be strange. I. I think that's that's a very nice compliment, and that's all good. Yeah, that's beautiful. Now you do have uh, coming out now your biography, your autobiography. Life is so strange. Missing persons. Frank Zappa. Prince and beyond. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, that's a lot of what I just told you is pretty much, <laughs> you know, and I do have a lot of poems here in the book. I dedicate them to a couple of people. One is to Warren and one is to Frank Zappa and really endearing to me. And I have a chapter in there that says um, <clears throat> uh, all about uh <clears throat> My loves and lost, <laughs> loved and lost, as they would oh. say. <clears throat> and um, I had a lot of very nice um, dates and friends and uh, loves uh, on the way. Um, <clears throat> I was in love with Jackie Jackson for quite a long time. And some crazy stuff happened with his family that I really had to um, separate myself from him. So <clears throat> I write a little bit about that. <clears throat> and then um, I write about, well, of course, Prince, my relationship with him. I, I write about that too. I, I have quite a bit about Prince because I, I, I felt his spirit in a real different way. <clears throat> and I think that he, that that needs to be respected as long as well as all the uh, women that spend time with him and, the, and his musicians. You know, it's just you, you have to respect that loyalty because it takes a lot of uh, patience. And when you work for someone else in the music business, it's not your own thing. You know, you 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 got to do it their way. And that's uh, that's not very natural to you in general. Right. So I was able to be gifted enough to have my able to do my own music, you know, as well. When uh, Prince gave me that deal, that record deal, and, and as, as I say, I just want to recap that that he had written a song called "Bonnie" called "So Strong," and it's such a beautiful song. It's the melody. It's just, it makes you cry. Um, and I listened to it when he passed away, and I realized he wrote the song about me. The whole time I was thinking he wrote it about himself, but I'm singing it, thinking, wow, so I didn't sing it. So, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just had an edge about me when I sang it because I thought, you know, this guy's got a lot of balls <laughs> singing this song about him. And then I realized when I really opened my mind that he was talking about me. Wow. So, so powerful stuff for sure in your book. And where's the best place we can purchase it and stuff? Where can we go? Oh, well, you know, I have a lot of friends on the Facebook 
So I'm on there, uh, facebook.com slash Dale Bozio. And I have uh, the books I can send autographed uh, to you or your friends, whatever it is. And then, you know, some records and the eight by tens, you know, like rock stars do. You know, I have that going on. <laughs> A little bit more. Than, you know. are, are you still performing? Are you doing any performing? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I just played three shows this week uh, for my birthday. My, me and my son, we have the same birthday, March 2nd. So I played a few shows this week at the Canyon Clubs, and I'm going to play at the Whiskey in June out here in California. And I have a tour with the uh, Lost 80s, probably all the way to New York, Florida, Boston. going to go a lot of places this year. Because I, I say, you know, why not? Well, not now that everything is a little bit eased up on the people and uh, things are better in the world, we'll continue to get better. Absolutely. And one, wow. one best place we can find info on you. Uh, best place to find info on me is pictureperfectpodcasts.com. And you can see both my shows on there. You can go to my Shopify page if you're interested in any merchandise and also learning about me or sending me an email about Anything that you might have heard or with suggestions for a show. All right. Fantastic. You know, Dale, I tell you the stories that you've been able to tell you, people got to purchase the book. You just gave us snapshots of what to expect uh, reading your book. And I think the thing that also is interesting, you talked about the, the drug issues that you had in the 80s. How long did it take you to beat that, especially the cocaine and stuff? You know, that was, it was so easy to, to take drugs in the 80s. You didn't even have to buy it, you know? And people just had drugs. It wasn't like now. And, and, and everything was so, so uh, I don't know, corporate maybe, you know? Like, really, everything's out of control. Uh, you pay, I mean, weed is legal, but you got to pay taxes beyond belief. I could have bought a house with the amount of taxes you pay. <laughs> You know, yeah. I mean, it's insane. So I don't know one, you know, does one hand wash the other. So the drugs were heavy and, and so was the liquor, you know, and I was a Playboy Bunny <clears throat> at 18 years old. <laughs> what do you think I was doing? I was oh. drinking cognac. Okay. I was drinking cognac since I'm 18. No um. way, Jose. When I met Frank and he had Napoleon the 18th for us for New Year's Eve. Oh, forget about it. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Well, there's lots yeah. of stories to tell for sure. People need to purchase your book. I appreciate you. I appreciate Juan. And thanks, guys, for coming on again on the show. You're so Thank great. You. Belated happy birthday, Dale. You guys, I love you so much. All right. God take care, Dale. You. Thanks for coming All on. Right. All right. You're God listening and watching the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection, a podcast dedicated to personal growth and mental health discussions with women CEOs across the globe. It's here where inspired women get candid about what drives them to succeed and the personal challenges they've encountered on their path to success. So if you're a woman on a mission, this is the podcast you don't want to miss. So sit back, relax, and let's get candid. Hi, and welcome to Women CEO and Reflection. I'm your host, Marisa Jones, and I'm joined by my co-host, Neil Haley. Today's guest is Maria Burns Ortiz. She's the co-founder and CEO of Seven Generation Game, where they make educational video games and the tools to develop them. 
Maria has helped lead seven generation games from concept to commercialization. She has been named one of Forbes Next 1000, Business Journal's 40 Under 40, and one of the National Latina Business Women's Association's Rising Stars. Prior to Seven Generation Games, she wrote a New York Times bestseller, taught digital media at Tufts University and Emerson College, and was an award-winning columnist for ESPN, and named one of newspapers and education's Latinos who will change the world. Welcome to, to the show, Maria. That's an impressive resume. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So I'm so excited to have you on the show. You know, my background is in tech and uh, I was a I was a gamer from back in the 80s and <laughs> for a long, long time. And I always wanted to get into game development when I started learning program. That wasn't my plan, but I'm really curious because, you know, you've had the company for uh, around 10 years, I think. And, and that's a long time for a women-led tech company, especially around video games. Um, which is not common for women um, to, 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 be, uh, to be successful. So tell us about your journey on how you started this company and why and uh, what you love about it. Yeah, it's funny you're saying, you know, you would have loved to be in games because if you had told me I was going to be in games, I'd say 10 years ago, I would have said you were completely out there. <laughs> there was no possibility. But yeah, we actually started Seven Generation Games. Um, I had been in media before and I was just looking for something different. It's one of those things, you know, all the, the stars align and uh, this opportunity came up. And actually, uh, my co-founder, who is my mother, <laughs> said, let's start a video game company um, to teach kids math and do it more effectively than it's being done. And I think narrative's a big part of that. That's, this was all part of her pitch. And she said, you're a really good storyteller. So come and do this. And so that's how we actually started looking at how could we close the math gap. Um, we started specifically looking at indigenous communities. And once we had data that showed that the games that we developed were able to do that, we kind of grown from there. And so, yeah, that was kind of our, our pre-years. And then we we officially incorporated uh, about two years later in 2015 and, and went all in and here we are. So yeah, it's one of those, crazy journeys, but it's been really, it's been really fun and sometimes not so fun, but it's good. That's so great. Yeah. Um, what community, who's you? Oh, sorry, Neil. No worries. Uh, so no, I was my, my first question for you on, on that whole thing, video games, equating Matt, you see there's definitely a need, right? When you created this video game to be the connection with math, especially where kids just need that extra resource to get motivated to do math, right? Exactly. And then the way we talk about it is, you know, a kid will play a video game 50 times to get incrementally further. You know, they will try and they will fail and they will take what they learn and they will try again to do a little bit better. And we weren't seeing that. And we thought that's really what education is about. That's how you get better at math. No one sits down and solves, you know, calculus equations the very first time, you know, you start and you progress and you, you try and go backward, you know, and, and so we found games to be the perfect vehicle for that starting at, you know, multiplications where we, we jump in because, you know, math, it's not easy and it's not perfect. And, you know, games make it a little bit more fun. That's so cool. Where, where are your games uh, found? Like which, where do you, um, what, what kind of institutions carry your video games? Yeah, so we're pretty much, we try to be everywhere at this point, um, but we're, we have 
we're in the app stores, Google Play, uh, through our website. We work with a number of schools. We try to make sure that it's accessible as much as possible, as widely as possible, because we don't want it to be something where, you know, we talk a lot about, and we don't just talk a lot about equity. I think on our team, we really live it. <laughs> One of the things I'm proud of is our team is, as a company is 90% Black, Indigenous, Latino. We're uh, more than, our team is more than half women, right? And so we really, for us, this idea of having equitable access meant kids everywhere could hopefully access as many of our games as possible, not just kids who could get them because their school paid $25,000 or whatever some of these these other software solutions out there are costing. And so pretty much, you know, through sevengenerationgames.com and as many places we can get, we try and have our games out there. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so you mentioned that um, Black and, and Indigenous um, employees and kids, how do you recruit for that? And Latino, yeah. So and we, you know, yeah. I think we look, yeah, yeah, we looked around. So two of our, our founders are, are Latinas and uh, we started working in indigenous communities. But I think, I, I, you know, one of the things people say, oh, that's, you know, we, I think it's two things. One, we have networks often that reflect ourselves, right? And the communities that we're in and the communities that we come from. And um, so sometimes when we're asking for referrals, we're getting referrals very different than, you know, some of the tech bros at some of these other companies out there who look around and say, we'd love to hire diverse candidates, but they just don't exist. They are out there. And so we have a really strong network that I think enables us to tap into that. But also we're in, you know, a lot of the folks who work with us are from the communities um, that we try and serve. And so not only do they come, but they can see themselves reflected in this, or they look at our products as, this is something that I wish that I'd had as a kid. Um, that's not just, you know, fun games, but also culturally reflective in a lot of ways. We have bilingual English and Spanish games. We have games in indigenous languages. We have, and so I think that people look at that and they can see themselves in a way um, that they don't see themselves in other companies. And that makes people want to work here. And we're, we're so, doing good stuff at the end of the day. <laughs> that is so cool. So, so my parents are, are from Sicily and I'm first generation American. And I was always into technology, like, you know, radios and stuff like that. And then computers didn't really exist when I was a kid, like that were personal computers. But man, I would have loved to have had a mentor or a group such as such as yours, a company who, you know, brought this technology to me. Right. And I had like someone that I can aspire to. Right. Because, you know, as a role model, like how exciting for these girls to be able to have that with your organization. Yeah, you know, and I think it's a really important thing. We um, talk within our company about two different things, right? There's certain people who will, you know, so, some of us, I'm one of people, if I look around, there's no one that looks like me, then I will just push my way through and make it happen. But there's a lot of, whether it's girls or people of color that look and see no one else that look like them. And it's really hard to aspire to something that you cannot see. And so we really try and make that possible. And, you know, we turn around and say, you know, look, when you walk in here, you're not the only female developer, you're not the only Latino developer, you're not the first black developer, you're not any of these things. You get to be you because that's, you're not carrying the weight of, of, you know, representing all of your community, you know, you just get to be here. And I think that's really important for a lot of people, um, especially younger people coming in. That is so great. Um, so I noticed that you you were an award-winning columnist for ESPN, which is also really outside of the box of what you would think like a Latino woman would be in that field. So between that and and starting this company, like you've had a lot of kind of uncomfortable situations, like having to put yourself in situations where it's all brand new and you're learning everything from scratch. 
Um, what what do you think drives you to do that? And then what do you do to 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 get yourself on track? Yeah, you know, I and I always used to joke I went from like the most white male dominated field to the most white male dominated field. Um, but I think for me, you know, it was something that I was really interested in, and and so it was this opportunity to do something really cool and really fun. And so that was kind of when I got into sports media, that was my goal. And it was really interesting. And I got, you know, my whole goal actually, which was, I want to work for ESPN. I want to work for ESPN because if you start, you want to do sports media, you know, where are you going? Right. And so that's kind of top. And I had gotten, actually, I started covering college soccer for them. I was 23, I think when I started there and after about, I don't know, seven years and I worked in different writing roles there, but you know, I started thinking like, is this it? Not just, you know, it wasn't even where I was, but that would have been my whole goal. And I'd already achieved that. And I wasn't even 30 at that point. And I thought, you know, your whole life, everyone says, what do you want to be when you grow up? But no one ever says to you, okay, and then after that, what, you know, and I kind of found myself looking at that. And so this opportunity came along, and I got to take a lot of those same skills, but try something different and build something um, that wasn't just fun, but that really made a a serious impact and so it was it was a fun opportunity and I think it was a learning opportunity how you can take skills from one area and transfer them to something that might seem radically different but I was like I'm actually you know well prepared I can research and I can talk to people and I you know I'm not discouraged by no one else who looks like me being in the room sometimes and so there's a lot of those things you know uh, the critics and the comments on sports articles are nothing compared to middle schoolers who are giving you honest feedback about your games, right? And so it's been kind of a fun opportunity to build that out and and to kind of keep, you know, always keep learning. And I think that's something that sometimes we forget and we get comfortable. And for me to keep pushing myself has been great. I love that. I'm always learning. I And I'm always telling people, you know, I've managed a lot of teams being in the tech space for, for years. And I've always tell them, you know, spend five, six, 10 hours a week learning something new just for fun, you know, because you never know when you're going to use it. And it it just keeps you being inspired all the time and what you do. Um, and so uh, so with that question, your mom inspired you to do this. Um, what is it like, you know, they tell you not to work with family members, right? What was it like working with your mom? And did any of that personal stuff, you know, between you perhaps come into the business, probably some of it in a good way, but probably, you know, what happened when you, when that comes in, in a not so good way? Yeah. You know, it's funny because I think as you look across, um, history, there's, you know, histories of family businesses, right? I mean, like, centuries or probably millennia of family businesses, right? And so we're kind of continuing that tradition in some ways, I think, but in the next generation, the next iteration of what that looks like. For us, it was really, now I'm the oldest of, at my mom's, I have, there was four of us. I'm the oldest. And I think it's very different. Like my sisters were like, I could never work with my mom and everybody has different dynamics, you know, but, um, you know, so I think for me, it was just a really good fit. And she and I get along really well. And I think there's all these things about they worry about, you know, married co-founders splitting up and things, but you don't really hear about people like, and then me and my mom split up, you know, it's that's much more rare. And so I think for us too, a lot of the things is, you know, you know, that person, you know, how to already deal with a lot of these things. Like, you know, how do you handle conflict? We, you know, we'd had 30 years experience in those situations and things um, so I think for us, it was a really good, easy process. And I think it's really helpful because you know that if you are, you know, if you're in the, tr you know, in the, you know, figurative, you know, startup kind of trenches with someone, 
to know, have someone that you know is going to be there no matter what. And not just in that like nice to say it way, but like literally who has been there for you your entire life. Um, I think it's been really good for us. Now, like I said, not everyone can always work with their parents, I know, but for us, it's a, it's a good dynamic. I think we're kind of two peas in the same pod in some ways. That's so great to have that support from her. So what are, what are some of the things, you know, learning, you know, when you're learning, you always have to keep people motivated and excited, right? And so what are some of the things that you either incorporate into your uh, games for the kids or to your employees to have them continue to be creative and bring that into the games that you're developing? Yeah, you know, I think I think there's two things. For our employees, we always want to make sure that people are continuing to, like you were talking about, continuing to learn. And I think, especially in tech, the tools that you use will change, but that ability to learn new things will always um, carry you far. And so for us, that's been part of it. It's like, we want everybody to always be learning. And for the kids, I think one of the big things that we talk about and look at is like, context, right? And, and making sure that things feel applicable. And I, I think that's probably true in the office too, but you can actually apply it in the moment. But, you know, you want to know that there's a purpose to it. I'm not just telling you need to know this because, but, you know, if there's, you know, sickness spreading in your village and you have eight sick people, you need three of each herb for, you know, ever, you know, for people to get better, how many herbs do you need in total? And so things like that make oh, there's a point to math. <laughs> you know, there's a point to these things, not because someone runs up and drills you on multiplication tables. Or, And I think sometimes that gets lost in, and, and I'm, I, I think teachers are just, you know, saints living among us. So I don't mean that in a critical way, but sometimes, you know, that gets lost. Sometimes kids feel in, in education, like how does this apply to either my real world life or in our case, I talk about, you know, virtual world applications of real world skills. And so building that out so that they can feel that and use that and understand why it's important. And once they understand, then they're like, oh, okay, now I need to learn it because there's reasons for it. And so I think that's a big part of what we try and do for kids is make it fun, but make it, you know, applicable. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because my son, I have a 20 year old and a 17 year old boys and my, my 20 year old, when he was in high school, like he got into programming and he wanted to be an engineer, but then um, he, you know, by this 10th and 11th uh, grade, he would send me TED talks on how bad the educational system was. And he would be like, there's no purpose to this. They want me to show my work, but I just know it. I don't know how I know it. There's no, pur-. like he would get so frustrated. And eventually he dropped out because his mental health was affected by the fact that they weren't listening to him. They, they, they weren't, you know, they put him in a box as to how he needed to be, but it wasn't motivating for him. So now he's, you know, he didn't graduate, but now he programs all the time and he, you know, he does it just for fun. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that you say that having a purpose when learning why you're doing those um those math problems is, I, I can totally relate to that. So um, that's great that you incorporate that. So let me ask you, you have probably changed significantly into the space, right? There's so many different aspects and having to partner with all these different organizations and getting your game out, games out and, and working with kids and getting in that mindset. What would you think the biggest thing, uh, biggest growth uh, has been for you personally um, from, from this whole experience? You know, it's just, it's been crazy. I think this ability to do things that, uh, 
not not that you didn't think you could do, but just the ability to pick up things, you know, like rapidly and to be, I think, more flexible, to be quite honest. You know, sometimes things, I'm very much a planner and a plan A, B, C through, you know, double F type of person. Um, and really running a company, you can have all of your plans, but things never are going to go according to any of them, you know, hopefully they don't all go against it every day, but you know, you have to be flexible and you have to take a step back and just breathe sometimes and and take it all in and say, okay, you know what, I'm going to focus on this and I'm going to do that. And it will all be all right at the end of the day. And also, you know, my mom always says, and at the end of the day is another day. Right. And so I love that one make or break kind of thing. And I think I've gotten better at that realizing that it's, you know, the sum of all of the work and all of the parts as opposed to this really important thing at the moment. And so I think that's where I've kind of grown is I don't, I don't want to say I'm more relaxed because I'm certainly probably not, but I'm more understanding of it's the long game. That's great. What is it that you do to relax? What do you, what is, what do you do in your downtime? If you have any. Right. Well, I have three children. So I three, my oldest is 14 and my youngest is seven. <laughs> so my, my away from work time is usually running children, different soccer practices and different things. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, my favorite tweet I ever saw was, you know, life is basically being an adult is saying after this week, things will slow down every week until you die. Um, <laughs> so I think I'm in that phase that with small children, especially and running a startup and, and do all those things, you know, I just, my downtime is dreaming about what I'll do if I really ever get real downtime. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it ever changes. I, I, I'm juggling like so many different things. I just feel that the older I get and the more free time I have, the more I want to fill it with my passions and doing things such as this podcast. Right. It's a good way to do it though, right? Absolutely. Then I get to meet women such as yourself and Neil who's been a, a pleasure yeah, on all these. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, just, and it's the funny thing, I'll just jump in in the final points before we're running out of time, that, you know, it's it's about when you do something like this and get to meet new people, it's so much fun. And it becomes so much fun to do more and more and more of them. And Marisa's seeing this with interviewing over 60 plus people oh. and she's only been a podcaster for two months. I got to give her kudos wow. for that. That's that's amazing. Yeah, she is she is trying to catch up to me. Nine thousand plus interviews. I don't know if she will because I'm always on them. So that's just that. I just I'm never going to catch up. My plate. Yeah. <laughs> go ahead. I I will never catch up, but it's been great. I have had over sixty women book with me. I've interviewed half, and every day I get two or three more that have booked with me. It's just been a pleasure. I, I'm glad that women are open to having this discussion, right? Um, because it's so important to be mentors to other people who aren't who aren't out there, and that's one of the main reasons why I did this. Because in my career, I never really had female mentors to to, to support me, uh, to look up to, to guide me, and um, I just I love this, and I I, I hope you know, young women out there get to listen to this. And I hope young men as well, because they can learn from this as well. So thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Any words of advice for anyone who wants to start their own business? You know, I will will give the advice that my mom gave me when she talked me into doing this company. So obviously it was good advice because it worked. But, you know, there's always going to be a better time, right? You'll always be more financially stable. Your kids will be older, you'll be further in in your career, you'll be all these things. 
there's always going to be a better time. And so you should just do it now because there's no better time than now, ultimately, because you'll never open up. So that's 